Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 18, and we are so blessed to be able to worship together this morning. Um, I will say this, uh, that's probably the last time you'll see Becky Vout with a microphone in her hand. <laughs> so I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. TJ, we're, take care of that. For, okay. So I love Becky and Bill Vout and just their spirit before the Lord. Uh, they are such a blessing to our church. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your heart as well. And uh, we are blessed today to celebrate Christ together and lift him up. Uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. And we are continuing our series, uh, What Would Jesus Undo? What Would Jesus Undo? We've said the last couple of weeks that we all remember uh, the saying from back in the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s, WWJD. Uh, what would Jesus do? A lot of people had the t-shirts, the bracelets, the bumper stickers, and uh, not too long after that saying became popular, it kind of became one of those things we just say. Uh, it just became a trite saying, uh, what would Jesus do, just WWJD, and then we'd have to look at our lives and say, Man, am I really doing what Jesus would do? Um, but I think in our lives today, what we want to talk about for the, this week and then next week as well is not so much what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus undo in our lives? And the reason I say that is because I think as Christians, we have to have Jesus undo some things in our life before we can do what he calls us to do. Two weeks ago, we started by talking about spiritual indifference, spiritual indifference in our lives that Jesus desires to undo. This idea of lukewarmness, if you will, this idea of just kind of coasting through life. I, I know Christ is my Savior, but I don't really live every day for him. I kind of compartmentalize my life. I put Jesus on Sundays and maybe even Wednesdays if I go to church on Wednesday night, but the rest of the week is pretty much mine. And my finances, I give 10% to the Lord because that's what I'm bound to do. I have to do 10%, so I do my 10%, but the other 90 is mine to do with what pretty much I want. Uh, we have this kind of a mindset of kind of compartmentalizing our lives, and it creates this indifference in us. We become unaware we're not alert to the things of God, and we get apathetic in our walk. And next thing you know, the next step from apathy is sin, open sin. And so we have to be guarded against spiritual indifference, and I believe Jesus desires to undo that. He says in Revelation, I'd rather you be cold, I'd rather you be hot, but don't be lukewarm. That doesn't mean cold is bad, lukewarm is bad, hot is good. It's saying cold serves a purpose, hot serves a purpose, but lukewarm serves no purpose. You're not fulfilling what you were created to do. Last week, we talked about the, the hollow, or hollow worship, not hallowed worship, but hollow worship, meaning empty worship that Jesus would undo in our lives. This is where we come to worship, and we just kind of go through the motions. It's just kind of a show. This morning, we are learning that Jesus would undo spiritual pride in our lives, spiritual pride in our lives. Luke chapter 18, look at verse 9 with me. It says here in verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised other. That they were righteous in themselves. Verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican or tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus which with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Catch this now, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I know Greg prayed, but can we pray this morning, ask God to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We thank you, Lord, that we can walk with you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that when we were your enemies, when we were far off, that you came to us, you pursued us with your love and grace. And Father, I pray that we that know Christ today would just exalt you and, and lift you up. But Father, I pray that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Christ, maybe they've gone to church their whole life, they've really been a very good person. They're moral, they're religious, they pray occasionally, they even read the Bible, they give to charities. But you say none of that means anything if we don't know Christ. And so I pray that if there's somebody who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would, as only you can, by the moving and working of your Holy Spirit, convict them of sin and righteousness, show them your love, and draw them to the cross of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray that we would allow your word to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to teach us this morning that we would live differently as a result of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We read a familiar story here in Luke. It's a very familiar passage, especially if you were in our Luke study, which we just finished up last Sunday night. We went through the entire Gospel of Luke on Sunday night, verse by verse, passage by passage. And uh, we spent a lot of time on this passage specifically, so we're not going to go too far into it, but just so you have a little bit of context, um, uh, this idea of this parable here, this story is about a religious man, a Pharisee, which is the most religious man you can be in Israel, the highest of that religious class. Then we have a tax collector, and they meet up in the temple for worship. The religious man gave God a spiritual resume to impress God. I mean, look what he says. He says, I, I do this. I, I give tithes. I, I fast twice a week. I do all these things, God. The other man just merely, with his head down, realizing his sin, cries out for the one thing he needed more than anything else, not to impress God, but he needed mercy from God. And he cries out to God and he says, just be merciful to me, a sinner. He understood his position before God. He understood who God was. And he understood that only God could give him mercy that he needed. And I believe he was asking this not just once, but I believe it's showing an example of a lifestyle here. The interesting thing here is the religious man left the temple most likely thinking he was the one that was redeemed. He was the one that was restored. He was the one that was given mercy because, I mean, look at all that he's done for God. But Jesus says, actually, the tax collector the publican left justified. The one that the man, and could you imagine this? You're in church praying. Let's imagine our setting today, and you're in an aisle here praying, and, and you're a couple seats down from somebody, and we're praying, and you can hear somebody praying out loud, and, and they actually pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so at the end of the row here. What would you, th I mean, I would just be like, wow, that's Jesus-like. Thank you for that. This is what's happening here. This publican knows he's not liked, knows he's looked down upon. See, publicans in Israel are worst, the worst kind of a sinner. They have sinners, just general sinners. Okay, that's just liars and cheats and thieves and those kind of things. Then they have harlots. That's a whole different category of sinner. And then there's a whole special category for tax collectors. 
And they would consider tax collectors and harlots similar sin because one is obviously prostituting themselves away from God's design. The other, a tax collector, is basically prostituting themselves to Rome to make money. So here, this Pharisee is calling it like it is. He's saying, I'm glad I'm not like this guy because, man, he's the worst of the worst. He cries out for mercy, and the worst of the worst in that society received mercy and grace from God. Man, I am so thankful that the worst of us can get gracie and mercy from God when we cry out in humility. Because guess what? We're all the worst of us. There's nobody in here that's a higher level sinner than someone else. Well, I, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a sinner. It's like so-and-so's a sinner. Man, all sin has separated us from God. All sin requires a payment. And so there is no level of sin. It's just sinners. But I'm so thankful that Jesus said the man who humbled himself before God, rather coming in pride and arrogance, but humbled himself and cried out for mercy, left being justified. So I want to ask a question this morning as we talk about this idea of Jesus undoing the spiritual pride in our lives that many of us can fall victim to. I want to ask a question this morning. Are we full of God or are we empty before God? I'm sorry, are we full or empty before God? When we come before God, are we full or are we empty? And you might ask the question, well, what do you mean? Are we full of what? Are we empty of what? Well, are we full of ourselves when we come before God? What did this man do? He tried to impress God with all that he had done. Are we full of ourselves or are we empty before God? If we're full of ourselves, there is no room for God. Let's be honest. Some of us know that we are better than someone else in a certain area. Okay, let's just be honest this morning. Some of you are better in a certain area than someone else in this room. We are naturally bent towards also making sure that others know we're better than certain people at certain things. If you're not nodding your head in agreement, you, you're not being honest this morning. Come on now. You've never been tempted to let someone know that you know you're better than them at that? Listen, in our marriage, there's one of us that's really good at math. And there's one of us that's not very good at math. And I'll let you figure that out, okay? I know, but she, she's so gracious. When I try to, she's like, oh, that's cute. You're trying to balance the checkbook. Oh, look at you. <laughs> so cute. No, she doesn't really say that. She doesn't even let me near the checkbook in reality. It's locked up somewhere. I have no idea where it is. But many of us know we're better than someone else in an area. But here's the thing. It's not just that we're better than them in this area or this career path or whatever. It's that we have this, this, this inward desire. I just got to let them know I'm better than them. Because if they know I'm better than them, then they'll look up to me. Then I'll be praised by them. Then I'll be liked by others. Then I'll be awarded this praise and flattery. Maybe some of you are a talented musician or a great shot. Maybe some of you are gifted with sports or academics. It's tough to not let pride rear its ugly head. Sometimes we think we're better than those that don't know Christ. Sometimes we think that because we know Christ and we've been saved and we're worshiping him, that we're somehow better than somebody that doesn't know Christ. Those, you know, those people out there in the world those that believe this or that, those of this different religious group, those of this different background, those of this different race, those of this different thinking, we're so much better than them. How can they even, they're just so idiots. They're just dumb. I mean, look how better we are than them. 
Because we know the truth and they're living in a lie. Listen, you're not better than them. You just were exposed to the truth, received it, and received grace. And I tell you, sometimes the most, and I'm trying to be loving here. I really do want to be loving. But I get so angry when I see people get on their hobby horse against someone else. And it's not about pointing to Jesus. It's about putting them center stage. That we're somehow better than someone else. They haven't found Christ. We have, and we think we're better than them. No, no. We need to be showing them we're not better than them. We're equal with them. We needed grace. They needed grace. And so let's show them grace. Let's show them the gospel. When we are filled up with our supposed greatness, there is no room for God's presence in our lives. The saying is true. Some people are just really full of hot air. I put a couple dots after of but I realize hot air probably fits the best. However, the opposite is true. If we're filled up before God in our supposed greatness, there's no room for God. If we come before God empty of ourselves, we are in perfect position to be filled with God's grace. One author said it this way, and I love this. Humility and discovery of God's grace go hand in hand. Grace is not just removing the judgment I deserve. It's giving me the blessing of a relationship with God I could never earn. So let his grace fill you up. Don't come before God in your greatness. Don't come before God as though he should be lucky to have you. Some of us Christians, we walk in like, I'm here. I've come to worship today. All of heaven is still before me. God is still because I've entered the room. Silliness. Who are we? I mean, who are we? We're somebody because God chose to love us. God created us. We have innate design. We have intrinsic value and worth. But I don't come in my arrogance boasting of who I am. What did Paul say? I will not boast in anything but the cross. And by the way, he says, and my weaknesses. I'm boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ and my weaknesses. You know what that means? My weaknesses are on display for all to see. So here's the thing. You know that thing you want no one to know about you? That weakness you always try to hide? That insecurity you want no one to know? That weakness that you try so hard to keep back and hidden? I mean, God says when you put that on display, his grace is magnified. Because if God can love someone like you and someone like me, then God can love someone like them. But we try so hard to hide our weaknesses. Oh, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Man, let's be real before people and just say, no, man, I struggle in this area. Man, this is a weakness in my life. When we put that on display, I mean, God is glorified. When we empty ourselves, we are filled with his grace. When I empty myself before him and am filled with his grace, I can be used by God, which is how we are able to fulfill our created purpose in this world. So are we full or empty before God? If we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. If we empty ourselves, we can be filled with God's grace and used by God. In essence, we're fulfilling our purpose in this world. The truth is, pride is about my glory. Pride is about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. Jesus said it this way in the Gospels, that let other men see your good works, and as a result, they will glorify your Father which is in heaven, not ourselves while on earth. Hear me now. When they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven, not glorify you on earth. Now, you may receive praise. You may receive it at a boy or at a girl and a pat on the back, and that's all good. But the glory 
should instantly be redirected to him. I mentioned before, some of you are just naturally gifted in certain areas. Some of you have amazing intellect. You can just, you can just problem solve like nobody else. When somebody at work says, man, I never would have thought to come at it that way. Man, that's awesome. I just can't believe you came up with that. You know what you say? Wow, thank you very much. And I'm just so thankful that God has given me that ability. Listen, it's not about my glory. Now, it's not about also, hear me now. It's not that every single time somebody says anything complimentary, we're like, oh, it's, it's not me. It's not me. And we cower back. That's not what I'm saying. We stand strength and strong in his grace and say, man, God has given this to me and I'm reflecting glory back to him. Thank you for the compliment. I'm so thankful to be used by God, but it's not me. It's him. And we redirect the praise to him. So what is true humility then? I want to break this down this morning because I really want us to leave here with some, some practical understandings of what this looks like in our lives. When we empty ourselves before him and we're filled with his grace and then we're used by God, what does that humility look like in our lives? I want to go to another passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. Go back in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter. It's right before 2 Peter. So just in case you weren't sure, if you get the 2 Peter or to Peter, depending on who you're talking to or listening to. Um, that, was a, that was a little, a little dig. But anyway, Second Peter is right after First Peter. First Peter chapter 5. And I want to look at a passage where Peter speaks about this idea of humility. Now, it should be kind of ironic that the apostle Peter writes a section on humility. Don't lose the irony there. Peter was the disciple that thought he was the man. He boldly declared countless times how he was going to do this, and he was going to do that, and he was going to do this. And yet we get to 1 Peter, and we find a totally different Peter than who we read in the Gospels. You know why? Because he allowed himself to be taught and led and directed by the Spirit of God. When you read the book of Acts, you find out that Peter was actually the, the rock star of the book of Acts. He was the main guy all the way up until Paul's introduced. And then we see Peter kind of step off the stage, Acts chapter 10, and then Paul takes over. After that, the rest of the book of Acts is dealing more with the ministry of Paul. But the first little bit of Acts is, is really dealing with Peter. And you read even about the incident with Cornelius and the idea that God had to kind of remove some things in Peter's life and, and change his thinking on some things. But because Peter submitted to God's leadership and the Holy Spirit's guidance, we see a whole different Peter in 1 Peter than we leave off with even in the book of Acts. So look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Just a couple of verses we're going to look at today. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with Humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, we're not going to go there for the text, but verse 7 is one that's highly quoted, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That word care there is the word anxiety. Um, I think as we're humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, we're going to have some things in our life rise up around us, things we don't understand, and we're trying to live under his guidance and his direction, but some confusion might rise up. So what we do is we submit those things to him and we keep focused on him. We cast those cares upon him because he cares for us, and we keep living under that mighty hand. But let's break this down a little bit this morning as we have a few minutes to do so. What is true humility before God? 
Humility, first of all, is expressed in relationships. Humility is expressed in relationships. So, again, we're trying to be practical. I want you to think practically. Peter encourages the church to be subject to one another in the church. One author said it this way, it's easy to be humble when you're by yourself. Isn't that true? It's easy to be humble when you're by yourself. But the problem is, or the difficulty comes when others are involved. Peter spends time addressing relationships in the church and how each generation must respect and honor the other. You know, sometimes I think we're missing in church culture in America today. And I, I'm, I was saved at North Carolina Baptist Church. Well, through North Carolina Baptist Church, I was saved at a youth camp that I went to with this youth group. I, I attended here for a couple years before college, was baptized here, went away to college, came back from college, graduated Two weeks later, came on staff as the youth pastor. I've been, I was the youth pastor for about 11 years. I came on staff as the senior pastor in 2012. And so my church experience primarily is North Goodland. So I can't speak to every other church and every other denomination and all of this. But what I've seen, okay, what I'm hearing, uh, things that come across my desk, um, articles that I read or different conferences that are going on, it seems like there's really becoming kind of a divide in the church today. And there's this divide between older and younger. We call it traditional and contemporary. And I've heard churches try to do worship services with a traditional service and then a contemporary service. And I've talked to people that do that. I say, how does that go for you? And they say, well, it really didn't work real well. Because after a certain amount of time, people in the traditional service started looking down on the people in the contemporary service and vice versa. And so the, the pastor just went with whatever one was the bigger one and we did that kind of music. And just went with that. I hear stuff all the time about the younger generation this and the younger generation that or how churches are gearing towards one or the other. It's like we're either going to be an older church or a younger church. There's no desire to have a, I don't know, multi-generational church. But what does Peter say? I mean, we as younger believers, we need the older mature believers to lead us and to guide us. We need to submit ourselves unto them so that we can learn from their life experiences and how God has worked in their life. Listen, if you're here today and you think somebody who's older is useless because, well, they're older and they can't do a lot physically, you are missing out on the true value of that individual. David was told by his men, don't come to war with us anymore, David. Please, don't. you almost died. We don't want to lose the light of Israel, they said. What they were saying is, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your spiritual maturity. We need your leadership. We don't need you physically. We don't need you to come fight anymore. We're good with that. But we need you to lead us. See, that's why if you're an older person today, you might have fallen victim to the thinking that you're useless because you've reached a certain age or you can't do certain things physically or you can't do what you used to do. Please don't believe the lie of the enemy about that. You have so much to offer no matter your age. If you're a younger person today, you have energy and excitement and a, and a, and a way that you can tackle a problem and you can physically do things that maybe an older generation can't. And if you're an older generation person, you can minister to and mature these young people. Listen, these young women in our youth ministry or in our church don't need an older woman to tell them what they're doing wrong. They need an older woman to put their arm around them and say, can I just walk with you for a little while and share some things with you? The younger men in our church don't need an older man to tell them about how it used to be and this and that and the other thing and how you need to change it. No, they need an older man to say, it's worth everything to walk with Jesus Christ no matter what it costs you. They need an older man to say, this is what it means to be a man today. See, men today have a broken male culture. If you are a man here today and you think being a man means what's in your driveway or what's, what you live in or what's in your bank account, you are missing out on what real manhood looks like. That has zero to do with it. 
Our culture would tell you different. But we need older men and older women to walk with these younger generation, to encourage them in what it means to walk with Christ. See, humility is expressed in relationships. The word subject here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 5, when he says, be subject one to another. The word subject is a Greek military term. It means to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In a non-military use, so there's a military use and a non-military use. In the non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, hear me now, assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. I believe what Peter is expressing to us is the non-military use, and I believe it's also what we find Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 when he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Peter is saying it. Paul is saying it. Listen, humility is expressed in relationships. It's about voluntarily coming alongside and walking with someone else and encouraging them and being there for them to carry their burdens with them. The key is our focus is not on self, but on others. It starts with what Paul also said in Philippians chapter 2. He tells us that we need to have the mind or the attitude of Christ, which brings us to the reality that humility is primarily an attitude of the mind. Humility is expressed in relationships, but it's also primarily an attitude of the mind. Peter tells them to adopt an attitude, not an action first. It's an attitude, not an action It's not about what you do first. It's about why you do what you do. This mindset is produced by the Spirit of God. And why does it have to be produced by the Spirit of God? Why can't we naturally, in and of ourselves, be humble and humble before the others and serve the way we should? Because naturally, we're bent towards self and pride and arrogance and me-first syndrome. But when the Holy Spirit is involved through salvation, we are able then to have a spirit or an attitude, a mind of Christ is given to us. See, just as it wasn't natural in Peter's day for people to be humble, it's not natural in our day today either. This is why when you're driving down 53 and you're going maybe 57, 58 miles an hour, some of you laugh because you're like, I never go that close to the actual speed limit. But you're, you're in a line of cars, and there's a couple, maybe four car lengths between you and the next guy. And this guy comes flying up on you, right? Like doing 70, 65. And then you see one of these. As he's trying to stop, does it rear-end you? And some of you are like me. You're tempted to do something. Just take that foot off the gas a little bit. Just kind of get down to 55, you know, want to obey the law. Well, then what does that guy do? He's everything he can to pass you. Do you ever have someone pass you, and then you get to the light, and you're right behind him? Isn't there a part of you that's just a little satisfied at that? Like, good job. Why was that person so bent? I got to get by you. Why are some of us so bent on? But I got, you can't inconvenience me. I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. Because it's me-centered. You're inconveniencing me. Don't you know who I am? You should get out of my way. You should do what I want. It's an attitude of the mind. From the humble mindsets that we should have and do have the power to express in our relationship with Christ. From the humble mindset, we see the expressions of serving, not being served, giving, and not taking, fitting into others' schedules, and not demanding they fit into ours. We're also encouraged to think of who we really are in Christ. 
We are urged to not be something we are not, but to be whom we really are in Christ. Don't try to be humble as though you can't do it on your own. No, in Christ, you are able to be humble. It's who you are. So just be who you are. Humility is not self-denigration. It's not denying something that's true in an act of false humility. I'll give you an example. If Jeff Proctor said to somebody, I'm not good at playing guitar. That's not humility. That's lying, right? <laughs> Let's just be real. You ever meet somebody who's really, really good at something, you say, wow, you're really good at that. They go, oh, no, no, I'm not. That's not humility. That's denying the truth. That's why I was saying before, it's not saying I'm not good at that. It's saying, thank you for honoring me that way. But I just want you to know it all comes from him. He gives me this gift to play this way. He gives me the gift to, to do this or that. It's not lying about who you are or lying about a gift that God has given you. It's about thinking of who you really are in Christ. It's thinking not too high and not too low. What is it C.S. Lewis said? Humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not, I'm, oh, I'm way down. No, 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 no. You're in Christ. You can walk with a confidence in Christ, but it's in Christ, not in you. We must rely on the grace of God because God gives grace to the humble. But what does it say? He resists the proud. This is where we say, yeah, that's for those sinners out there. That's for the world out there. I believe when we come, even in Christ, in our pride, I believe it breaks his heart. Because I think he sees us better than we see ourselves and the silliness before his eyes when we come in pride. Humility also and quickly lives under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 6 Humble yourselves, therefore. Once you've clothed yourself, clothed your mind in humility, you're living in an attitude of humility. Now you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Aren't we thankful it's a mighty hand? The hand of God is strong. Some of us have forgotten that. Some of you are in situations where you forget his hand is really as strong as it is. You think somehow he, he can't handle it. Somehow he can't take care of the situation. The truth is, he is a mighty God and deserves to be praised. He is not weak. Your circumstances are not beyond his ability to influence, control, or change. You have to submit to him and be willing to go with whatever he desires. See, humility lives under the mighty hand of God. An attitude of the heart gives rise to the expression of the submission to God's will and purpose. Did you hear that? An attitude of the heart or an attitude of the mind gives rise to the expression of the submission to God's will and purpose by more than a posture of humility, but an awareness of our limitations. It's not about just having a posture of humility. It's about actually believing and realizing you have limitations, but that's okay because in Christ, our weakness makes us strong. Our limitations are actually good things. I would imagine... A person that is humble will believe they have a problem with pride. I think when you sit there and you honestly look at your life, and if you honestly think, man, I, I think I struggle with pride, to me, I think that's a sign of true humility. But the person who sits and says, man, I hope all these people that have pride issues figure it out. I hope they can get this stuff straightened out, because, I mean, I'm telling you what, I'm tired of hearing messages about pride. May, you may, you may want to step back. And just reevaluate a little bit and say, maybe I'm the one that's battling in some degree. If we start to feel all puffed up, all prideful and arrogant, that we somehow are the amazing ones that do all that we see in our lives, 
All we need to do is ask ourselves a simple question. And again, if you're one that battles with pride, I would write this question down and I would write it somewhere I could see it every single day. And I know I have to remind myself of this often. What do I have? What do you have that you have not received? So think about that for a second. If you battle with pride, what do you have that you have not received? The, the answer is obvious. Nothing. You've received everything. Alistair Begg said it well. Of all the forms of pride, surely the ugliest is spiritual pride because it's all a gift. You might think, well, my home, I worked for my home. Did you? Yeah, you did put work in. But how did you have the intelligence to do the job you did? Because God gave you that mind. How did you have the breath in your lungs to go to work every day? Because God gave you that breath. And he gave you that one. And that one. And that one. God is the one that has gifted everything to us. All gifts, all gifts come what? From the Father above. They all come down from him. Your family is a gift. Your spouse is a gift. Your life is a gift. Everything you have, you've received. Every single thing you have, you've received. The Apostle Paul, who we referenced earlier, I believe battled with the temptation of pride. Based on his writings, I've heard it said that often when somebody, a Bible writer, a Bible uh, uh, author, is writing over and over about certain topics, we can tend to think maybe they battled with that topic, that issue, that sin. I believe Paul had a temptation with pride. Because of his credentials and the magnitude of his revelations, he had to struggle. I mean, you're writing a third of the New Testament. You can't tell me in his humanity he didn't battle with pride. But I love what he says in 2 Corinthians 12.7. This is actually the message paraphrase. I love how the message paraphrases this passage here. I encourage you, write down 2 Corinthians 12. Read the whole chapter. He deals with this in greater context. But the message paraphrase says it this way. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, those revelations that God revealed to him that he could write down and give to us as the word of God. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. I love the message on that one. Because I wouldn't get a big head. God gave me a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my what? My limitations. Also, and finally, humility can anticipate exaltation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 again. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now I love that phrase. That he may exalt you in due time. Why does Peter tell the church this? Why does Peter tell the believers this? This truth is not given for motivation. It's not to motivate them to be humble because God is going to exalt you. It's not motivation, it's explanation. As you've humbled yourself, God is going to exalt you. It's explanation of what's going to take place. But the key we have to remember here is, if God chooses, he can and will exalt or lift us up in the right time. See, this is where I said before, 
allow your good works to do what? To glorify your Father who is in heaven. And when they see your good works, they glorify your Father in heaven, not yourselves on earth. Because we don't have to be praised and exalted from mankind because the God of all creation says, I will lift you up. So when I feel like no one's getting it, I work really, really hard, but no one's paying attention. I try to be a good person and honor Christ in all things, but nobody seems to care. Uh, Nobody pays attention. You know why you can just let that stuff go? Because God in heaven says, I will exalt you in due time. It's not about being exalted on earth. And in fact, Jesus says those religious ones that wanted to be exalted, that prayed publicly these really extravagant, you know, intellectual theological prayers so that people would hear them and say, oh man, now that's how you pray. Jesus says they had their reward. But Paul tells us that there will be a day that we will stand before him. We will be like him. And all of our works, all of our efforts for Christ will be tried, the Bible says. And he says, anything that remains, you'll be rewarded for. Isn't that crazy? I know I've said this before, but it always blows me away that God gives me every single thing I need to do, everything that I've ever done, the grace to even come before him in prayer, let alone to do something for his kingdom. And then he says, and all those things you did for me, I'm going to reward you for those in due time. I'm going to exalt you. It's amazing. And and talk about humbling. Man, I believe when we see Christ, we will fall. People say, well, will you dance before the Lord or will you ask him questions? I honestly believe based on scripture, you will say nothing before God because you will fall in sheer amazement of his holiness. And the Bible says it's so clear that every single person who ever even saw the throne room of God fell as dead men. And we come before God in arrogance, in pride, as though God should now stop and listen. Man, we have got to get our thinking switched around. It is not we who go to God and say, God, do this, God, do that. He is not a genie in the lamp. He is God. He is not a vending machine. I put in my prayer, he does what I want. It's God who says, if you ask something according to my will, I will do it. We don't go to God and say, okay, God, now that I'm a Christian, you got to do what I want. That's not how this works. No, we go humbly under the mighty hand of God. And we can be bold. We can declare things. We can say, God, this is what I'm asking you to do because I believe it's in agreement with your will because it's in your name and I believe it will glorify you. I believe God honors that. But when we come in arrogance as though it's about us, man, I think God is in heaven. And it's another one of those times I'm glad. Rather, you should be glad that I'm not God. Because when people come before God that way, I can only imagine what I would do as God. Oh, really? That's who you think you are. It's amazing how, when we're focused on self, how small God gets. When we're focused on self, God gets really, really small. But when we focus on him and his mighty hand, how, how big God can be in our lives. Peter spoke this well because he spent the Gospels again standing in pride. Then he denied Christ three times. Can you imagine I've always said, and we just talked about this recently, can you imagine denying Christ three times? And then it says that after he denied him the third time, Jesus and Peter made eye contact. And you look at the face of your Savior, who you know you declared is the Son of God, and you just denied him. You remembered every warning, every guard he tried to give you, and you realized you blew it. The Bible says that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. 
I don't think God looked at Peter to judge him or condemn him. I think Jesus looked at Peter to say, man, this is what I didn't want you to experience. I didn't want you to go through this. And so many times we think that's where the story ends. Peter's a failure. He's blown it. He's messed up. But then we read about a conversation that Christ had with them after he resurrected from the the grave. They had a one-on-one conversation, and then came the restoration. Peter, go feed my sheep. And then Acts, we read about Peter standing on the day of Pentecost and preaching, and then comes the increase. Thousands received Christ under Peter's preaching, the one that denied Christ three times. You see, exaltation comes in different ways. Sometimes we think, I'm a failure, I screwed up, I blew it back here so God can never use me again. And then time goes on and we're restored and God uses us to his glory and we're exalted in essence and we realize in that moment, this is not me because look at who I really am. When we come humbly before him, we realize it's his mighty hand that lifts us up. The truth is, Jesus desires to undo spiritual pride in our lives. So let me ask you a question. And please do not think about anyone else. This has to be about you. How do you believe God is peeling back pride in your life? What is an area of spiritual of your spiritual life where you are prideful? And do you really practically believe that all you have is a gift, therefore nothing to boast in except for in Jesus Christ? I want to humble ourselves this morning as a church, but as individuals under the mighty hand of God, because when we do, his hand will guide, protect, provide, and cover us in all seasons of life, no matter what the enemy throws at us, what our life throws at us, we can trust that he is for us, who can be against us. Would you bow your heads with a, uh, for a moment of prayer as we go to invitation this morning? Every head bowed. The praise man's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation, but here's what I want you to do. As they come and, and lead us in a song, I want to ask there, those of us here that if we struggle with pride, if we're battling with pride this morning, it seems to be something that we really battle with, where, where we start to think, it's not really a gift, it's me. It's me that has done this. It's, it's my efforts. It's my, my, my. We focus more on self than others. It's more about my schedule than serving them and helping them out. Maybe you'd come this morning and bend a knee. There are those that are going to be in the front here that would love to pray with you. Not to judge or condemn, but just to pray with you, to encourage you, to let you know that that God's grace is for you. You can be restored. Would you humble yourself this morning? Maybe you'd come and bend a knee as an individual, mom and dad, a family. I don't know, whatever God is leading. And you'd say, God, it's all about you. I'm humbling myself before you. I'm asking that your mighty hand would lead me and guide me and that I would boast in you and you alone. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would lead God and direct. Lord, I truly believe that for us as American Christians, This could be probably the most besetting sin we battle with as the church. We think in our culture that it's all about independence. It's all about mine. It's all about who dies with the most toys wins. I pray, Lord, you'd break us of that pride. I agree, Lord, the most 
the ugliest rather, the ugliest pride is spiritual pride because everything we have is a gift. So thank you, Lord, for the gifts. Thank you for allowing us to be used by you. Fill us with your grace now. May we be empty before you to be filled by you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you want to come and pray, if you're battling in pride or some other area of your life, maybe something I didn't even talk about this morning, would you come? You don't need to be afraid or fearful of what others are going to think. Would you come and just bend a knee and say, God, I need to spend time with you this morning. Some are already moving. Just come on out. If you want to pray with someone, there's those in the front who love to pray with you and encourage you in God's word. Would you respond this morning as we sing?